you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There he is. Good morning, church. Uh, it is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, as Luke said, my name is Neil Castle. Uh, I don't respond to Castle. I'll secretly judge you if you get it wrong. Uh, but I get to be one of the pastors here at Seven Hill. So good to be with you. So good that you've chosen to join us this morning. Uh, let's pray as we dive into our passage this morning. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we just want to just thank you for your word to us. Thank you that uh, by your word that you have revealed yourself to us, that in your word you have revealed your son Jesus to us, so that we might see you for who you truly are. I pray that, uh, that you would give us eyes to see you more clearly, that you would give us ears to hear your word, that you would give us tongues to taste your beauty and your glory. Lord, I pray that what I have to say this morning might be well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray these things in Christ's mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, I hope you've been uh, enjoying our, our deep dive into this just incredibly rich passage in Colossians 1. And so far we've been uh, given this just uh, incredible picture of, of the magnitude and the, the expansiveness of Christ's rule and reign. Uh, and so quick kind of a little recap of where we've been. First, we, we looked at, as uh, Luke said before, who, who Jesus is that he is the image of the invisible God. And so if you want to know what God is like, then we should look at Jesus. And then we looked at his authority. And in particular, his rule and reign over the spiritual realm. That There's, there's no being, there's, there's no ruler, there's no throne or dominion or authority that is over him, that he's overall. There, there is nothing that is any kind of threat to him that can even come close to him. And then we saw that how Jesus is also over all of creation. And he's not a deistic kind of God who created everything, but then just kind of stands at a distance and is uninvolved, like, you know, like those kind of toy cars where you wind them back and just let them go, that he kind of wound the world up and just stood back and let it run. No, no, everything exists through him, and everything exists for him, and he's actually the one who, who continues to hold all things together. And so he, he holds the, the, the universe together in some mysterious way that he holds the universe, every, every planet, every, every animal, every koala, 
every, every person all the way down to every molecule and atom that, that he's somehow holding it all together. And everything just continues to exist and does what it should do because Jesus is holding it together. And so this should, on, on one hand, just, just cause us to be in absolute awe of him, right? Like, like if you actually stop and, and think about all that for a moment, which is what we've been trying to do for these few weeks, is that if we just let these truths just kind of penetrate our heart and our mind and our soul, then that should just blow us up, right? In awe and worship of who God is. At the same time, it kind of should make us a little scared, right? I mean, this Jesus, with, with all this authority, all this power, there, there's nothing that can stand before him. There's, he, he sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. Like, what is he going to do with all that power? Because at this point, up until this point in our passage, we've been looking at uh, each week a different verse. Uh, first week, 15, then 16, and, and 17. And, and Paul's been showing us this Jesus in this kind of huge, uh, transcendent, kind of cosmological sense about how, how big and powerful he is. And we might be thinking, well, what, what is he going to do with all this power? Yeah, and then we get to our verse today, verse 18. And it starts by saying, uh, and he's the head of. And if you think about that, what, 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 what might you think would come naturally come next after what he's just been saying? Maybe, you know, that he's the head of the universe. Or maybe that he's the, the head of the heavenlies. Or perhaps, you know, he's the, the head of the world and, and all that is in it. But actually, when we get to verse 18, he actually kind of makes a, quite a remarkable shift in emphasis. It shifts from Jesus' transcendence to his imminence. From, from Jesus being over his creation to Jesus actually being in his creation. From, from Jesus being over time and space and, and in eternity to Jesus being in time and in space and actually working in history. Because here we see that he's not just the one who created all things, but he's also the one who brings in the new creation and makes all things new. So we'll read our verse again for today, verse 18, uh, and then we'll start to unpack the significance of the verse. There up on the screen for you. It says, And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So there's two kind of big ideas uh, that we'll be unpacking there. Uh, firstly, that Jesus is the head of the church, uh, and then that he's the firstborn from the dead, and then we'll, we'll spend some time just landing on kind of Paul's big idea for this whole passage. Uh, we're actually going to look at these things in reverse order, though. Uh, we're going to start with Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. Uh, we're going to camp out here for a while. Nick tells me if I'm going to spend a long time on a point, I'm going to let you know. Just letting you know. We're going to spend a while... On this one, all right? So Jesus, what does it mean? Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Uh, my wife, Kirsty and I, uh, we, uh, we typically have pretty different tastes when it comes to movies, all right? She's, uh, you know, more of a, uh, a drama kind of thing, right? I'm into more, you know, like, the action and sci-fi. So, you know, when we're, you know, trying to choose a movie to, to watch together, sometimes it gets a little tricky. Uh, but there is a, a particular niche kind of subgenre uh, that we both love, 
called Rom Zom Com. <laughs> uh, some of you might be asking, what is a Rom Zom Com? Well, that's a good question. It's a romantic zombie comedy. All right? Romantic comedies, you know, not, not my thing at all. all right? But you had zombies. Man, that's a, that's a killer movie, right? Get a pun? Yeah, all right. Uh, one of our, uh, our favourites uh, is called Shaun of the Dead. Uh, perhaps you've seen it, uh, recommend it. Not Dawn of the Dead, no, 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 Shaun of the Dead. And I was, uh, I was reminded of that uh, because when I read this phrase, that, that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, that, that kind of sounds like a great zombie movie, right? The firstborn of the dead, right? Like, you know, it kind of sounds like an origin story for the very first Zombie, you know, maybe it explores his struggles and feelings of what it's like to be the first undead. I, I don't know, but in every zombie movie, if you've ever seen one, you know there's that inevitable moment, right, where, uh, where the remaining survivors, they're all kind of, you know, holed up somewhere, you know, it's in a house or in, it's a pub, you know, in Shaun of the Dead, it's the Winchester Hotel, uh, or maybe it's in the lab where they're trying to create the antidote to fix the whole problem, all right? No, they're, they're there, and, and there's just a, a swarm of, of zombies that are trying to break in and desperately trying to get their way in. And, you know, this is often the, the, the climactic part of the movie, and they know that the moment that once that very first zombie breaks in, then there's just going to be a whole kind of swarm of other zombies come in and start invading everything, and they're just going to keep coming and coming. Now, what's my point? Why are we talking about uh, zombies and the undead? Well, uh, two things. First of all, uh, although firstborn of the dead uh, might sound like zombies, you may have guessed that it's actually not that at all. Uh, it's actually referring not to the undead, but to being, what, raised from the dead. Right? We're talking about Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and we've heard this firstborn language before, right? Earlier in our passage, back in uh, verse 15, it said that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. Uh, and if you remember, we saw there that that, that in that case, firstborn, it, it didn't refer to uh, you know, a, a physical birth or a sequential order that he was somehow born, but it was referring to the rights and the privileges that Jesus had and the, and the ruling sovereignty that he inherited. It was about his position of authority. But here, the, the word firstborn, it's actually used in that other sense, that it, that it does mean that he was the very first to come back to life, that he was the first to be resurrected. And then being the first means that there's actually more to come after him. Now, uh, some of you might be thinking, though, uh, but, but isn't there other resurrections uh, in the Bible that actually come before Jesus? So you know, how, can, how can it be that Jesus says that he's the firstborn? You know, you might be thinking of Jesus' own friend, uh, Lazarus, or uh, Jairus' daughter, both of those that Jesus himself, before his resurrection, actually raised them from the dead. And there's even uh, some examples in the Old Testament of people being raised back to life. So, so how can it be that, that Jesus is the first? Well, there, there's something about Jesus' resurrection that completely sets it apart from all those other resurrections that we see. See, when, when Lazarus, when, when he was brought back to life, right, 
He wasn't, he wasn't just kind of, you know, revived. Like, he was, he was dead, dead, right? D-E-D, dead. Yeah? He, King James said he stinketh. He was that dead. Okay? But, but he, he came back to life, but, but what eventually happened? He died again, right? right? It, it didn't last that long. He's not kicking around somewhere still. He eventually, you know, well, I don't know how he died. Maybe got sick and died or not sure what it was. Uh, but he was, when he was brought back to life, he still had that same mortal body. See, Jesus' resurrection is wholly different because he didn't just live a little bit longer and die again, but his resurrection was an eternal one. That he's not going to die again. See, he wasn't just kind of kicking the can down a road down to kind of delay the inevitable, but because in his death, it was a complete conquering of death. Because he, he defeated the sin that brought the curse of death. And so his resurrection body is actually a, is a new creation body. It's an, an eternal one. And, he, and, he call, and he's called the firstborn because there's more resurrections like his to come. See, the, the resurrection that we have to look forward to in the future, that, that's not a Lazarus resurrection. But if you're in Jesus, it's a Jesus resurrection. That's what it says in Romans uh, 6, 5. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like whose? Like Lazarus's? No, like Jesus. So his resurrection is actually an eschatological event. What, what does that mean? What, is, what does the word eschatological mean? Well, uh, eschatology is referring to the, 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 the study of uh, the last things or the end times. Right? And so when we're thinking about eschatology, uh, we're typically thinking about you know, the future, you know, all the stuff that is to come. We're talking about uh, you know, Jesus' return, uh, judgment, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So all those things are, are yet to come, right? They're future. But Jesus' resurrection some 2,000 years ago it is actually an eschatological event because his resurrection, in his defeating sin, in his conquering death, is actually the beginning, it's the breaking in of this new creation. And so if I can kind of make my second tenuous link back to my zombie illustration... Right? Like, like when that, that first zombie kind of breaks in and you know, once he's in, he's in and he kind of drags with him this swarm of undead and they keep coming and coming. Well, in an you know, entirely positive way, right? Jesus' resurrection is the first breaking in of this new creation into the world. And with him, he's kind of dragging in with him the, the kingdom of God to start invading in space. And it keeps coming and coming. And, and that's the beginning that it's talking about in this verse, when it, talks, when it says that, that he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, now think with me. If we were talking about Jesus, and I uh, said, you know, complete this sentence, he's the beginning, what, what might be your first response? will probably be, well, he's the beginning and the end, right? He, he's the beginning and the end. He's the first and last. He's the alpha and the omega. But the, the point here is, is not that he's the beginning and the end, but he's the beginning of the end. 
that, that through his resurrection, he, he's beginning to bring in this new creation, that being in the process of reconciling all things to himself. Now, uh, you might be here, maybe, maybe you're not buying kind of any of this resurrection stuff. Maybe it's your first time in church, or maybe you've been here for a while, and, and you're still not really sure, and uh, this, you know, the whole idea of, of, of resurrection, just, you, you, you're just not buying it. You know, there, there's no way uh, this could have possibly happened. You know, people, people don't come back from the dead. Uh, it's all just myths, it's all just invention and lies and, and cover-up, it's just not possible. And so whatever happened back then, it wasn't a true resurrection. Maybe you're thinking that, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus wasn't dead dead, but just kind of mostly dead. You know, like Princess Bride, if you know that one. Like kind of mostly dead, can be kind of revived and brought back. And then, and then he was just kind of revived a couple of days later. But see, the, the problem with that is that the, the Romans, they were absolute experts in killing people. Right? They, were, they were experts at crucifixion. So they, they would have made absolutely certain that he was dead. And even just the, the flogging right, that, that Jesus received prior to being hung up on that cross, that was enough to kill most people. And, and so the idea that three days later he's just up again and walking around is, is just not even possible. Or, or perhaps the, the disciples, they, they kind of just they faked the whole thing, right? They, they, they stole his body and, and they all just kind of conspired together to come up with this story. And, and, and so they were lying about it. And they somehow managed to, to keep that lie up for the rest of their lives and, and successfully convinced people that it was true. See, even if somehow they, they could have taken the body away, it was guarded by you know, battle-hardened Roman soldiers, if somehow they were able to do that, it doesn't account for all the eyewitnesses that also see Jesus. I mean, Paul says in another one of his letters, in 1 Corinthians, that there's over 500 people who saw him alive. If you don't believe it, go and speak to them. You can ask them what they saw. And I think one of the, the most compelling reasons for why we can be uh, sure that the, the whole thing isn't made up is the way that it fundamentally changed the lives of the disciples. See, before... Jesus' death and resurrection, it was pretty clear. They, they didn't really know what was going on, right? And then at his crucifixion, man, they were scared. They, they ran and hid. Most of them uh, abandoned him. And then they kind of hid for the next three days. But then something happens that absolutely transforms their lives. And not only them, but, but then ultimately hundreds of others as well. They, they went from men who were being who were scared and hiding, running for their lives, to, to men who boldly proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And in that, there's, there's, there's no benefit for them. I mean, all they ultimately got from that was, was ridicule and, and imprisonment and torture and, and even death. Most of them actually died in the end from it. Paul, Paul himself was uh, beheaded. Peter crucified upside down. James died by the sword. I mean, like typically if you're going to lie, you, you lie to you know, escape pain and punishment, right? Not, not to bring it on. Uh, Chuck Colson, uh, he was an American attorney, uh, an, advi an advisor who served as special counsel to US President Nixon. 
Uh, and he was one of the, the key figures in, in the Watergate scandal. Uh, and was, he was involved in actually trying to, trying to cover the whole thing up. He was trying to cover up a break-in into the Democratic Party offices. Uh, Colson actually ultimately went to jail for his involvement in the whole thing. Uh, but during that season, he actually became a follower of Jesus and, and ultimately started uh, prison fellowship ministries as well. But, but listen to what he says, uh, what he learned from his Watergate experience. He says, I know... The resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would, have not, they would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a life of 40 years? Absolutely impossible. See, the, the most plausible extra explanation that we have for the historical record is, is as, as unbelievable as it might actually sound, is that, is that the resurrection is true. That it, it actually happened. And see, this event is actually so critical to the Christian faith that, that Paul says that the, the whole thing actually rises or falls on it. Listen to what he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, there he was uh, writing to Christians who were, uh, who they, they believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead, but they didn't believe that there was a resurrection to come. Uh, and so this is what he says. Uh, 15 verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. So if Jesus, if he's saying that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then we're wasting our lives. Right? This, this whole thing here, complete waste of time. We're fools, absolute fools. But if he did rise from the dead, and we can be assured that he did, then, then like the disciples, it should transform our entire lives. See, if, if, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then we have real and true hope for this life and for the next because our hope isn't based on anything in this life that can be, can be taken away from us, but it's based on the certainty of being raised with Jesus. That's why Paul says in, there in verse 17 that if, that if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith is futile, that we're still dead in our sins. And so Jesus' resurrection is the, the proof that his death was effective in atoning for your sin. I love this way that the, the, the gospel can be uh, kind of summarized in four words. Jesus in my place. That Jesus died 
in your place for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. But if he wasn't raised from the dead, then Jesus' death achieves nothing. You've got, Paul goes on, uh, verse 20. says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, right? So the same kind of language, firstborn, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come, uh, as also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall may all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. See, if, if all our hope is in things in this life, then then they'll ultimately fail. See, maybe your, your, your hope is kind of just fun, functionally tied up in what you do. Like there's this kind of you know, persistent need to just try and prove yourself. Need to be successful. Or need to ha- have, have that job or, or have a job. Or that need to you know, just like get, get that salary or get that salary back that you once had. Got to prove that you're not you're, that you're not a bum. That 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 if you're a bum, then you're nothing. And so you got to prove that you're not a bum. Or maybe you're just gonna you know desire to just kind of prove that you're you're always a good mom or a dad. Always feeling the, the need to, to to let people know how well you're doing, how, how successful you've been at work this week. See, we're forever trying to prove our righteousness to others. We're always trying to prove that we have some kind of right standing in this world, that we're worthy. And if you take a moment to kind of be honest and maybe have a look at why you do what you do, you might find that there's potentially very few things in your life that aren't affected somehow by this desire to have some kind of righteousness before others some kind of right standing before them. See, Jesus' resurrection actually blows that whole thing up. That you can actually be be free from that because it promises that that Jesus really did die for sin. And so if you're, you're in Jesus, then you're actually being made righteous before God, that there's no other righteousness that you need because all you need has been completely given to you. And, and that righteousness is so pervasive that it actually frees you from trying to seek it in any other place in your life. That it frees you from constantly trying to prove yourself. Or, or, or maybe the hope that, that you have is, is, is in being healed from kind of some kind of sickness or disease. Or maybe it's you know, hope in you know, finding that one person. Or, or, or family. Or, or maybe you just kind of you're holding on to the simple hope that it'll all just kind of work out. So all, the, all those things are, are, are good things. They're not, they're not bad things, but, but it's incredibly dangerous to place all our hope in those things because they're, they're so fragile. There's, there's no promises there that they're going to work out how you want. And then even if you get everything that you want in this life, well, like ultimately you're going to die, right? So even if you... Even if you get healed, even if you get a resurrection like Lazarus, right? Still going to die. Even if everything works out. 
Uh, on my drive here on Sunday mornings, coming early off of my, my daughter Jamie, she comes in with me, and uh, we like to listen on the radio uh, to, to Light FM, and they play uh, some of the old classic hymns uh, there. And uh, the other week, they, they played one that I, that I remember I hadn't heard for many years. It was, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. And I know, oh, oh. <laughs> he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. That, that life is worth living because Jesus lives. And that no matter what you might be facing, even death, that Jesus' resurrection and that the promise contained within that, that, that you have a future resurrection, eternal life, that life is worth living and that's the hope that you need. Jesus is the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead. And, and as the beginning is the, the, the beginning of this new creation that he's breaking in, one of the, the aspects of that new creation is God drawing to himself and drawing together his people, the, the church. So we're going to go back now to the start of that verse, back in Colossians 18, and consider Jesus as the head of the church. It says, he's the body, the head, uh, head of the body, the church. Uh, maybe you uh, remember uh, old nursery rhyme, right? Uh, here is the church, yeah? Here is the steeple. It's kind of awkward because you've got to do it like this way. Open the doors and here are the people, right? Remember that one? A couple of blank faces. Deprived childhood like mine. It's all right. Now, now that's cute, right, isn't it? But it, but it reinforces a, a, a misconception about the church, right? As if, you know, the, the church is primarily a, a building or a place, Right? But the Bible tells us that, that the church isn't a building with people in it. The, the church is the people of God who, who gather together like this. And that might be in a, in a purpose-built building, or it might be in a home or a park or a community center, right? And that's why that as we, we gather here, right, we're just as legitimate a church as you know, the church down the road that has their own building, Right? Because the building itself is arbitrary. The, the, the church is the, the people of God who gather together. And we see that throughout the New Testament, it, it describes the church as the body of Christ. That is, that, 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 that Christians, where, where Christ's kind of active and physical presence in this world. But the, the point that Paul is making here is that, that Jesus... Uh, that as the church is the body, that Jesus is the head, that he rules over his church. See, ultimately, this, this isn't Nick's church. Right? Don't need to apologize, because he's going to amen that, right? Uh, last, last week we had, yeah, see, amen. Last week we had uh, our bishop preach. Right? It's not his church. Right? We're part of the Anglican Diocese. It's not the Anglican Diocese church. Right? This is Jesus' church. Uh, Nick and, and Pat and myself, we're, we're, we're pastors of this church. With the, one of the ways that 
uh, Bible describes pastors as shepherds. And even then, it's at pains to tell us that we're just really under-shepherds because the true good shepherd of the church is Jesus. And that's not just the, the, the local church like us that we're talking about, but it's also referring to the, the, the entire church, the, the universal church, all Christians around the world, that Jesus is the head. And so we can take these preceding verses that we see in Colossians, actually apply all this to his church, that the, the church was created by him, was created by Jesus. It's, it's, it means that the, the church is not some kind of man-made institution or club. The, the, the church is, is nothing like any other kind of organization in the world because it's, it's created by Jesus himself. And it was created through him and for him. And, and it's Jesus who holds his church together. This means that, that ultimately the church worldwide is in good hands. It means that, that ultimately that our church is in good hands, right? You, you, you may have seen that there's been uh, questions raised publicly about our uh, continued use of this venue. Now, I've got to say that um, I love this venue, right? I, I, I think it's absolutely amazing for us. Right? Just quietly, there's eight other Sit on a Hill churches around. Uh, one even has their own building. This is the best, right? We have an incredible facility that God has given us to meet in. But, but whether or not we can continue to, to meet here for as long as, as, we're, as we want, or if at some point we need to find another place, that Jesus is the head of the church. And he knows. There are no surprises to him. He's looking after us. See, we, we exist not because we have a great place to meet and an awesome playground for the kids to play in. Right? We, we exist because Jesus has drawn us to himself, whether we're meeting here or somewhere else, and it's him that holds our church together. And so as we, we consider all of this, we, we begin to grasp just a little bit of this big point that Paul is trying to make in this whole entire passage here, is that in, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. So we're going to land. Preeminence of Jesus. See, all of this shows us that, that Jesus being overall isn't, it isn't just limited to some kind of you know, transcendent, from a distance, kind of sit back and watch authority, but because he has actually entered into his own creation, that he lived, that he died, that he, he rose again, that he, he, he was drawing his people to himself and creating the church, so that we might have uh, hope for this life and for the next, that, that means that, that this authority overall that Jesus has it actually suddenly gets really personal, doesn't it? See, his claim over all creation extends all the way down to you and me. See, Jesus is preeminent. He is overall, including every aspect of your life. And, and so the, the question that we've essentially been asking all along is this. 
do you live that way? Is, is, that, is that actually true for you? Because, like, like, it's easy to sing, right? Like, we're just about to sing about that. Jesus is over everything. But if, if you're going to examine your life, if we looked at you know, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what, what your priorities are in your life, what, what could we conclude has functional preeminence in your life? And I, I include myself in this. Even though I'm a pastor here, it's, it, I think if you, if you look closely at my life, I think you'd still constru- struggle to conclude that Jesus is actually preeminent in every, preeminent in every aspect of my life. Because because we can say it, and we can declare it, and we can sing it, and we can, we can amen it. But are we actually living in the truth of that? Does, does Jesus have a, a functional rule over your life? See, Jesus' preeminence is not, it's not about just kind of simply bumping him up to the, the top of the priority list in your life. Right? You know, you might have you know, sat down to make a list of your priorities, which is a good thing to do. Number one, God. Number two, spouse. Number three, kids. Whatever that is for you. Now, now that's kind of right, but it's actually not sufficient. Uh, imagine with me, if you would, because I don't think I'm dumb enough to actually do this. So you have to imagine with me. that, that I, Imagine that I, I make a list of all uh, the women in my life, and I kind of order them in terms of priority. You know, how I'm going to try and prioritize them in my life. And I, I, I took this list to my, my wife, Kirsty, and, uh, and I said, hey, babe, just made this list of how I'm going to prioritize all the women in my life. Just want you to know, good news, you're at the top, all right? You're, you're my uh, BAE, before anyone else, right? There's others, but you're before them. How do you think she might respond to that? I think if I did that seriously, she'd probably slap me across the face uh, and then kick me where it hurts. In the shins. Shins really hurt. Uh, I actually did ask her this as part of, you know, like, my sermon prep. Uh, and she said that she was happy that she just made the top five. So that's a win. Um, but a slap and a kick is probably a, a, probably a more appropriate response because... Who she is to me and the covenant of marriage that we have means that she's not just simply one that I I need to prioritize above others, but there's something about our relationship that actually sets the stage for all other relationships. See, See, it's not enough for Jesus just to be at the top of your priority list. His preeminence means that he's he's not at the top, simply at the top of the list, but he's, he's the paper that your list is written on. He actually governs all things. That every priority in your life is actually governed by the preeminence of Jesus. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's uh, stories, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in the story Prince Caspian, uh, if you know it, Lucy, who's the, the youngest of the four children, uh, she's been longing to see Aslan. You know, Aslan's the, the, the great lion who rules over Narnia. And when she finally gets to see him, she says, Aslan, you're, you're bigger. And, and Aslan responds, he says, that is because you are a little older, little one. And she says, not because you are, 
but because you're bigger? As it says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. See, that, that's a great little picture of how we grow in the light of Christ's preeminence. That, that as we see that more clearly, as we see more and more who Jesus truly is, that he gets bigger and bigger in our lives. How big is Jesus in your life? Is he, is he just kind of one priority among others? All these priorities kind of fighting for air? Or is he getting bigger and bigger in your life? I mean, he, he rose from the dead. He, he saved you from your sin. He, he made you righteous. He brought you into his family. In the midst of everything that's in your life, will he be the one that actually governs all things? Will you look to him? Will you trust him with that? Would you pray with me? So I want to invite you to just enclose your eyes and maybe just take a moment <clears throat> ask the Holy Spirit to help us. And think about some of those ways that perhaps you try to prove your righteousness, prove your right standing in this world before others. What do you base that on? What is it that, that you feel you need to make you right before others? Or perhaps where is your hope? What are you placing your hope in right now? What is it for that thing that you think that, you know, if I, if I don't have that, then I just don't know how I'm going to survive? Lord Jesus, I just want to take this moment to consider who you are. That you are the Lord God who rules and reigns. And that rule needs to be over us too. So Lord, I pray that the, the truth and the power of your resurrection would be transforming our lives. That our righteousness, that our hope would be in you alone. Lord, may you be the one who is preeminent over all of our lives. Not just one on a priority list, not just, just 90 minutes on a Sunday. But you would be the one who rules and reigns and governs every aspect of our lives. That you may become bigger and bigger in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. May that everything we do be for your glory. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.